0: Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins platform this is a solutions oriented podcast and live radio show each broadcast we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host Brian Perkins, so today we have an incredible story of a special guest um, that's joining us. Mr. Aaron Stark. Welcome, Aaron.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm sure I I saw that there was just a bit of a technical glitch just a moment ago uh, as we prepared um, for and glad that you were able to connect back in just right on time. So um, welcome back. And um, those of you who may have read and even seen on our website and, and other social media, Um, where we posted Aaron's uh, TED Talk. Aaron is a motivational speaker and outspoken advocate for mental health awareness. Um, And I've invited him today, as you uh, have seen in the title of today's broadcast, Lessons from the Playground, I Was Almost a School Shooter. And his uh, TED Talk entitled, I Was Almost a School Shooter, has received over 12 million views. And I, you know, I say that um, just to bring um, real attention to the fact that people are interested in hearing this story, and and I I think it goes what I was saying, but I think I'd rather be explicit to say, you know, I invited you today, Aaron, not because you know to bring any kind of special kind of to glorify um, school shooting or to um, to make Uh, this something to celebrate that um, there have been um, school shootings in American public school history. Um, Rather, you know, I, and I I mentioned to you offline that, um, you know, I tell my students um, in a leadership preparation program that a lot of them want to be school principals. And uh, I've had countless students ask me, why do you do this? What is it that motivates you to do this work? And I, you know, I tell them and I think the same applies to you, is that what I tell them is that I do it because of the families and students in the schools that they serve that I'll never meet and that I think that my influence on them will benefit those lives. And I think your um, story, um, there've probably been countless families impacted by the work that you've done um, in these interviews and the, the the story that you have told about your experience that has touched so, so many people uh, that i've I've talked to in just the short amount of time, but probably countless individuals uh, that you'll never meet. and so I personally thank you for being open and um, honest and willing to share your story. Um, and I know that today will be undoubtedly no different than you know. We have a lot of people that are are leaders and policymakers, community leaders that are listening in. And so, thank you in advance for um, sharing with us. Uh, to our faithful thank listeners, you. You welcome. Much. Yes, thank you, and uh, to our faithful listeners, welcome back, and thank you for being a part of our. Uh, family of thousands of listeners every month, and to our new listeners we 're glad you 've joined us and so aaron um there 's so much i you know I want to talk to you about um I guess i 'll start with you know that um you know in your ted talk you you talked a little bit about um you know your your early childhood i i'll i 'll let you start where you want to start. Um, but I, I would really love for you to give um, the audience uh, a brief synopsis of kind of where to get us to the point where you were, you were considering um, uh, violence against yourself and others, uh, if you could just bring us to that point.
1: Absolutely. Uh, first off, thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be on your show. Um, so... I grew up in a really dark and violent and aggressive kind of family. My parents were druggies and criminals and were running from place to place to get away from authorities and to avoid evictions and to avoid the police. And they, I lived a very nomadic lifestyle growing up. We bounced around from, I went to 30 or 40 different schools. So many schools I couldn't pay attention to how many I went to. Um, I was constantly a new kid. Uh, always, I, I never had any stable house or shower or clothes or anything like that. I was always the dirty, smelly kid wherever, wherever I went. Um, the Between the combination of the bullies at school, because every school I went to, there was a whole new set of bullies that I'd be dealing with. And then the continued abuse at home that constantly told me that I was worthless, that I was nothing, that, I was, I would never amount to anything. Um, it just got really unbearable and I started to wear that kind of persona as a shield. I, Mm -hmm. I wrapped that darkness around me like a blanket and used it to keep everybody that was, that would hurt me away. Mm -hmm. And over the years that the, the, the damage at home just continued to spiral out. Um, heavy crack cocaine use, lots of massive fighting, abuse of every kind of spectrum you could think of. And as I became a teenager, I turned, I was homeless uh, because I couldn't live at home anymore because I couldn't deal with all the violence and the drugs. Um, and so I was living on my own for a couple of years, living bouncing around from uh, friend's house to friend's house, uh, sleeping on their on floors or sleeping in sheds or in Fields outside of restaurants, and I kind of fed, fell headlong into that depressive darkness and used it, um, kind of adopted it as my as my self. Um, when you're told you're worthless enough, you will believe it, and then you do everything you can to make the whole world agree with you, and that's exactly the position that I was in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I was. During that time, I I had – I didn't have what you would, cons- would call friends, but I wasn't alone. I had what you would call disaster – what I call disaster groupies. They mm-hmm. were kids who wanted to be around me to watch the car crash. They should live vicariously through my damage, and they didn't have anything darker damaging in their life. And they, they saw me, and I was like some kind of weird, evil unicorn. And so we would – when we were sitting around talking with me in these disaster groupies, instead of talking about like friends or girlfriends or sports or things like that, we'd actually talk about killing people. We would mm-hmm. talk about if you were going to kill 10 people, how would you do it? Or if you were going to kill a whole school, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And that was like the fiction of the group. It was basically just a bunch of depressed kids trying to find a way through depression without any kind of guidance. Mm-hmm. And so the, that life, was very, very damaging. And then the the depression and um, abuse at home just got absolutely unbearable. Just massive amounts of violence. And I started cutting myself when I was about 13, 14 years old. Um, I described my life at that time like it was a big tsunami of of destruction. This big waves of chaos and anger just crashing all over everything. And I had zero agency over any of it. Um, Kind of I, I used to describe my life during the time to everybody. Like I was, I felt like I was in a movie that I wasn't a star of. Like I was just watching yeah. my life pass it by. Like I was sitting and watching the movie of my life pass by. And it was a really terrible, destructive movie. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that, but when I was in that tsunami of, of destruction, the one, I didn't have any control over any of my emotions, but when I would cut myself, that gave me, a little sense of normalcy, like even though it was destructive and painful and damaging, when you live in that kind of hell for so long, it becomes normal and it becomes, and anything else positive that intrudes, that becomes the thing that is alien and to be um, looked at with skepticism. Like someone come to me and say, oh, you're actually a good person. No, you're lying. You don't know the real me. Cause if you knew the real me, you'd know I was a, I was a monster. Mm-hmm. And so Um, There was one other important factor to this story. During that time, I had had one person who was actually my friend, and his name was Mike. And he lived on an opposite end of the block that I did during one of my many bounces around from house to house. And we bonded over comic books. Uh, We both loved superheroes, and we both connected over that really quickly. Um, He lived the exact polar opposite life that I had. He had a really stable family, really stable upbringing. The family parents still live in that house to this day. Um, he was really supported and loved and, and encouraged in all of his activities. And so Mike was kind of my home base. Whenever I would move from house to house and from state to state or, or and I didn't have any stability, Mike's, Mike never moved. So I memorized Mike's phone number and Mike's house was always kind of my safe spot. So It got to be where I had gotten kicked out of my house because I or left. I couldn't remember the exact details of leaving, but there was just massive, massive violence there. So I couldn't live there. And it was the middle of the winter, uh, mid January, and I was in the shed behind Mike's house. The I had been sleeping in his shed for the last couple of days because his parents wouldn't let me sleep in his house because I was dirty and filthy and ruined all of his things and stole everything. I was a terrible friend. And so I was, I was sleeping in his shed and he would bring me out food. And the shed was this dirty, dingy tool shed with like wood flats with gaps in the middle of, or gaps in between them. So it was rain dropping down. It was the middle of the night and it was snowing outside, raining. And there's, I was in this big gray recliner chair, big puffy recliner chair that was in their storage, all covered in dirt and cobwebs. I'm cutting myself really, really bad, like really bad, and the pool, blood is pooling down underneath me, To and I think I need to do something. I'm at the very bottom. I have to get myself some help, and I did the only thing I could think of, and over the years, social services had tried to intervene, and... There had been a couple of reasons why we had left and ran from house to house, and so I figured I'll call Social Services. They they might want to help me. So I knocked on my friend's back door and got a phone book from his mom, borrowed some bus fare for that afternoon, and set an appointment for later on. This was early in the morning. I made the call, 7 o'clock or so in the morning. The appointment for was for later that afternoon, 3 or 4. By the time I got there, they had also brought in my mom. Now, my mom was one of the biggest sources of my pain growing up. And I sat down, and they asked me, so what was the problem? And I produced a bloody razor blade, uh, one of the old square kind they have in box cutters. And it was covered in blood. And I threw it on the table, and I said, that's my problem. I said, at the very bottom, I feel like I am have nothing left, and I feel like I'm just going to end it. I have nothing nothing to live for at all. And between a combination of my... My mom, she she knew the exact way to lie, because she spent her entire life telling people what that that making people believe that what was real wasn't real, so she could avoid social services or avoid the cops or <laughs> whatever. So she was one of the best liars ever, and she got them to believe that I was just making it all up, that I was just mm-hmm. doing it for attention, and that I did it all the time, and so they sent me home with her. And mm-hmm. as they sent me home with her, she turns to me as we're driving away, a couple blocks away from the place turns to me and sm- snarls with this mean look and says, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. Hmm. And my brain hmm. just broke. I hmm. That darkness I've been flirting with over the years, I just ran headlong into it. Like, you think I'm a monster before you wait, just wait, I'll be a monster now. Hmm. So the next six or seven months I spent on a what I think of as a scorched earth kind of philosophy where I just was that monster as much as possible, burned down every relationship I had. Anybody who was a friend, anybody who acted positive at all, I just would destroy everything. During this time, I also went on a campaign of wiping myself from existence where I went. I broke into every family member I could get a hold of and snuck into their uh, closets or wherever they held their family photos and destroyed as many pictures of me as I could get a hold of. I tried to erase myself from history. Mm. So I, 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 my brother discovered what I was doing and saved three or four pictures, but I effectively erased myself from, I burned hundreds of old pictures of me as a baby. Mm. And so I was on this scorched earth kind of uh, kick that I was on, I suppose. Months go by, and now by this time I have burned down all my bridges. I've I've even burned the bridge with Mike. I've 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 done everything I can to ruin that friendship, and I am now living in the field behind Casa Bonita, which is a restaurant here in Colorado. If anybody ever watched that show South Park, they an episode about Casa Bonita. Mm-hmm. That's the restaurant mm-hmm. I was sitting behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was in the field behind Casa Bonita, and I had gotten a bunch of drugs that I'd stolen from my mom. I had got a uh, a bunch of pills, a bunch of LSD, and a bunch of cocaine, and I was planning on overdosing, and I wanted to kill myself in in this field. And I thought, you know, I I need I was I need to do something. I I I'm at the bottom. I have to I have to do something. And so I I had nothing. I knew last time when I warned them I was going to come, that they called my mom in. And I wasn't going to do that again. And so I knew across the street from the school that I was at at the time, it said there was a sign that said mental health. And I didn't know what it was for, but it said mental health. And so I go up to the door and I knock on it. And I, it luckily it was a place that said mental health, but my family met with a counselor. I don't really remember what she told me because the only thing I remember was the last thing that she told me. And that's as I she looked at me she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. And I walked out that door and I felt my brain just, just shatter. And uh, I, that, that tsunami of pain and anguish that I've been describing, that giant hurricane of destruction, I found out what was underneath it. And underneath it, it gets really cold and quiet and still. Because when you really don't have anything left to live for, and you really don't have anything left to lose, then you can do anything. And that's a terrifying thought. Hmm. And all those plans that I had talked about with my disaster groupies, they just kind of crystallized. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I knew where I was, what I was going to do. I knew I had talked about when planned out basically the plans, I was either going to get a gun and walk through the the doors and kill everybody in the food court of my school or i was going to walk down to the mall and kill everybody in the food court of the mall and the only difference would have been the time of day that i got the gun and i knew where to get a gun because there was a bunch of gangbangers that went to school and they hung out at the R.A.T.C. building next to where i was at the they knew me they they saw i was sleeping in the park they sold drugs to my family i was obviously not a narc and so and I knew that they brought guns to school every now and then. This was mid-90s, so it was pretty common. Mm-hmm. So the, I, I went to him and say, hey, can you get me a gun, hopefully one that shoots a lot of bullets? And he was like, yeah, sure, give me, give me three days. And Or he was like, give me an ounce of weed, is what he told me. As that, to part, was the easiest part, getting an ounce of weed, and I just went to my mom's house, stole an ounce of weed from the guy sleeping on the floor, and brought it to him. He's like, okay, give me three days, I'm going to get you a gun. I was like, okay. So I was waiting, and as soon as I got the gun, I would have been going to commit the attack. And so in that time, looking back on it now, I think I was doing, I think I was saying goodbye. I didn't think that at the time, but I, looking back on now, I think that's what I was doing. And I went to Mike's house. And when I knocked on Mike's door, he opened it, and I, he didn't know what I was planning. He didn't know anything, what was going on. But he knew that I was living in hell and had been living in hell for a long time. And he opened the door, and he saw, and he, he just brought me in. and. He was like, dude, you're gonna be okay. You're you're not a monster, you're gonna be all right. And he showed me small acts of kindness. And it wasn't it wasn't the kind of overbearing kind of things where it's like, we're gonna fix you, or we're got this program I'm going to get you in, and I got this counselor to talk to. It was more just treating me like I was a human. Hmm. And at the time I didn't feel even I didn't feel like a human at all. And he treated me like I was a person worthy of respect. And it, when you're treated like a person, when you don't even feel like you're a human, it'll change your entire world. And it mm. did for me. It just changed my perspective. Mm-hmm. And I stayed there with him for the whole weekend. I never ended up going to get the gun. I, he, he just showed me love and it was, it changed my life. Mm -hmm. um when you're when you're in that really dark spot at at the time i was either something to be feared or something to be fixed so people were either afraid of me or wanted to fix me and mike was the only person in my world who looked at me like i was just a person in pain Mm -hmm. and so yeah uh, he he saved my life and he's still my best friend to this day Mm -hmm. he's still the uncle to my kids um Mm -hmm. yeah best friend i've ever had
0: well, wow. thank you so much Aaron for uh sharing that story and and uh unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, stories where uh people have talked about just being treated like a human being made the difference and I, that echoes um you know the some of the failing that is in the system um so I want to go back for just a moment to where you started with you know going from school to school place to place because you know I um I've had some experience in you know being on school board and and being in uh, a public official and and a lot of times what we were told uh that the system is set up uh in such a way to serve as a kind of safety net um where, where, if it's social services, uh, they know what to do and where, where to, you know, get the kind of help. Um, but I, I keep hearing you over and over at different points say that, you know, that didn't work. And so, not to blame all the people who are in so, social services, um, but I just hear it too many times where um, the problem that in your case you were having um, of just having someone listen and hear the source of your your pain and the source of your suffering um, they tried to make the answer to your, your suffering, mm-hmm. and so, the answer to your pain. And so thinking all the way back to early on, were there were there adults because I don't, I don't want to even just say teachers, but thinking about at yeah. school were there adults at all that were around that you felt um, uh, reached out and and then yeah, the yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah 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 definitely there were there were a couple over the years, especially with the amount of schools I went to, there were definitely some that tried to puncture that veil so to speak Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i had i had an english teacher uh i was also one thing about me i was always the uh um the gifted kid in school i always i i was always um accelerated in my my testing so i was good with english and science Mm i was always i I loved reading i was a voracious reader um so english class um my homework was atrocious i would would never do my assignments so Mm -hmm. my grades for homework would be bad but I would, I know the subject and my tests were really good. So I had a teacher occasionally, one in particular, I remember my English teacher, I think ninth grade, where she saw they had put me in remedial English class. So I was doing like punctuation and sentence structure. But I'm reading Shakespeare for fun and like doing advanced level readings just as a hobby. And so she saw that and she's like, so I see what you're doing here. I see your struggles. Let me give you a test and let me see what you know. And then we can go from there and so I tested with her and I aced the test and for the rest of the school year with her I actually got to be like a de facto school assistant where I got to help her in mm-hmm. class and 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 mm-hmm. and it was that kind of that, on that same topic what we were on earlier that sense of validation that being seen that mm. that you saw you saw past the surface and past the, the, the a label that you think that I was and you saw who I actually was
0: mm. and
1: that is the, the biggest difference. And the, the biggest thing that I think um could change it is anyone that actually saw past the dirty smelly kid who didn't have a shower and saw the poetry loving comic book loving nerd who just wanted to be told he was a good kid, you know wow, and yeah. you know, I think at the end of the day that's that's all anybody really wants mm-hmm. is for is we all just want to be told that we're okay right and right. where where we find that okayness can depend, can determine whether or not we go on a positive path or a negative path. And I think that, yeah, I I think there was definitely some teachers that were able to puncture that mostly by and, and almost without fail by just looking at me like I was a person and not by whatever stereotype they had preset in their mind that what they think I should be.
0: Sure. Sure and you know i i saw where you um you have this facebook group you are not alone um mm-hmm. so i don't know if you're referring to kind of in the present tense but my question is did you and, and i mean you you've talked about this group but it it almost sounded like they were you know they were groupies watching you as you said you know they were watching your life and watch waiting to see what happened in your life but um your whole uh this this the title of your group being you are not alone my question is did you see or do you recall other children uh that were cutters that were uh depressed oh yeah and otherwise that 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 you thought hey that that's me too i'm i'm in the same situation what what, what was that like Ooh, were there yeah. Were there a lot of others, or?
1: Um, well, when I was in the social group that I was growing up, there were two or three others that were kind of the dark ones, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, the big distinctions that I would make between the disaster group that I was growing up with and the You Are Not Alone group now, is there's a massive difference, is that Back then, it was kids living vicariously through the damage of somebody else. That Mm -hmm. they saw the damage I was going through. They kind of they they wanted to experience it almost like a TV show in a way. Um, And but these days, my You Are Not Alone group, which honestly has the most my most proud achievement of what I've accomplished for coming out with my story, um, is entirely based. It's it's a place for people who have gone through this similar kind of problem, or know someone that does, or are dealing with people who do that gives them a space to talk about deep, important topics without so much red tape and oversight that might cause them to have a lot of difficulties just because they talk about these topics. Um, Mm -hmm. And that group in particular, um, you mentioned in the beginning about the people who you don't know, who who you might hear that don't know, that you don't see. Um, Mm -hmm. That group, because it's given a safe place for people to talk about these issues that are really hard to talk about, it has itself prevented over 23 suicides, three school shootings and helped three people leave white nationalism. Wow. The group itself. So, uh, and so, yeah, it's, there's a, it's a major difference to, um, from, from perspective of me, but the, there were definitely kids who were like me growing up and there are still now. I'm not a, um, while while my story might seem outlandish and might seem like I'm kind of a unicorn, the, it's really, the scary thing is is how normal and banal it really is. Mm. How, how much that, how almost universal that sense of isolation and loneliness is among everybody. Because mm. the biggest thing that I found about talking with my story is that we put up a lot of barriers in society or between us. We put up a lot of walls that in our social structure, we think that that person is different than me, so I can't talk about them. We don't have any shared experience, that he's either too rich, too poor, different different social status, different religion, different language. What I've discovered with talking about um, feeling isolated and alone and feeling um, like I was nothing is that seems to be the one absolutely bipartisan thing that everybody feels, and it shatters all of those walls that we put up and they just don't exist right now mm-hmm. for me. And mm-hmm. and so it's it's been really cathartic and really powerful to see just how much those social stratifications are fictionalized versions of what we have put on ourselves. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, um what what is frightening to me and I've talked to a number of other um education professionals about this is that um, given our current kind of uh, status in, in at least American society right now, where um, people have become even more isolated, um, the conversation, at least not necessarily one that is, is very open, but, but is happening uh, among some of us, is what, what, what's going to happen next? Um, when, you know, we, we have been out of their places where you think about your interaction with Mike happened, you know, because you were in school and there were other places where, though it may have seemed like a pinball machine, that there was another place to bounce to and go. And, but, but now there are people who don't have that you know, kind of the chance of, of bumping into people. Um, What are you seeing in like, even in your group, uh, are people
1: talking about it? Yes. And that's a very dangerous uh, thing we're facing right now is that, that craving that I mentioned earlier about, we all just want to have someone tell us that we're okay. Mm is a really, really powerful driving. It's a really powerful driving, motivating force. Mm -hmm. And when when we find that person that's telling us that you're okay, if we find that from the from a negative spot, then if these days, okay, so a good way to, to illustrate it is when I was bouncing around from school to school, if I had if I encountered bullies, there would be five bullies on one side who would pick on me, but there would also be a counterbalance. where There would be four or five people on the other side who'd be like, okay, you're a good kid, we're going to pr- kind of protect you, and that would be kind of a general rule or whatever school I would go to, okay. So we would have the, the bullies on one side and the other side, it would be the counterbalance. But nowadays we have the social groups and, and, and the social uh, media, and, and it's produced these bubbles where that bully can then get cheered on at how to be the best bully, can get tips on being the best bully, and then get rewarded for being the best bully, and then get mm-hmm. cheered on to be an even better bully next time. So mm-hmm. he's gotten all of his positive reinforcement that they were craving in the first place, being told you're a good person, he got that by being the worst person possible. So mm-hmm. now he's going to continue to be the worst person he can be to get that positive reinforcement. Sure. So sure. we need to find a way to to provide that positive reinforcement to those people without the negative undertones or to let them see that that it, it's it's extremely damaging to to when you're searching for someone to say that you're you're okay, when that – you're okay, you're going to be okay, but that person has to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is where – it can get really, really terrible. So we just have to find out we – we have to start focusing on – instead of focusing on the actions that these people do and the, 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 um, the outward symptoms of their anger and of their depression, try to focus on what – what isolated them in the first place and how we can make them remember that they actually are included in this humanity, that, mm-hmm. that they can exist in the pain even though it's intense and they can make it through that darkness because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And sure. that's why it was important to name my group You Are Not Alone because it's not it's not that my pain is different than somebody else's. It's that, that we're all sharing the same pain together. And the more that we can talk about it, the easier it is. The more you, The more you know about something, the less it's going to hurt you. So the, the, the easier, the more we can talk about this and remove the stigma about talking openly about mental health, about talking openly about men's emotions, about talking openly about um, self-harm and depression, and not shoving these things under the rug and making them something that is taboo to even talk about, sure. the less damage they can do as a whole to society.
0: Absolutely. And and so to the mental health question Um, did you eventually find your way to, um, a mental health professional and is that, did that make the difference for you, um, eventually?
1: No, actually, um, the mental health professionals I've met uh, during that time of my life ended up being some of the more damaging portions of my progress. I ended up having to go through a personal, um, process of recovery. Um, focusing mainly on, I spent years doing a process of reconciliation with myself, where I call it acknowledgement, where I went to the people that hurt me, and I told them what happened, but not in an accusatory way. I didn't go about it to be like, this is what happened, and you need to pay for it, and it was more that this is what happened, and this is the reality of the situation, our, fund- our relationship has fundamentally changed from here on out because of it. And this is just the way it is, and it had le- uh, nothing to do with their response. I didn't care what they said in response to me. It was all about getting it off of my chest and and letting go of that baggage that I was carrying around. And so it was a long process of multiple years of that of, of going through that acknowledgement <clears throat> and working on myself. and only until recently, as an adult was I able to engage fully with uh, mental health therapy. And be able to open up with it, um, I got really gun shy between getting looked at and objectified by the early ones. Um, and then I was, I was, like I said, I was a very smart kid, and I loved psychology. It was a hobby of mine. So I read the psychological textbooks that you need to, to go get your bachelor's degree. I read them when I was like 17, just because I wanted to read. Um, so I knew, I know what what psychologists. I know a lot about psychology, so when I was dealing with my own therapist, if you weren't really good with what you were doing and didn't know what you were talking about, then I would run circles around you. Um, mm-hmm. And that was that, 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 I find that that kind of ego and aptitude for psychology is actually really common in extremely depressed people. Um, they tend to know how to spot people who are fake to them or people who are just trying to use them for a project. And, and it can be that that method of self-preservation can be very counterproductive when it's applied to a therapeutic setting Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it was definitely the case for me where my the the things i was needing to do to keep myself surviving in that life were detrimental to actually opening up to a therapist sure it took years
0: wow thank you for sharing that well you know we i i really appreciate you hanging in here with me we've we've gone over our uh our allocated time but i, I do want to spend some more i i do have one kind of to wrap this to a a more of a solutions oriented approach uh you you mentioned very early on that you felt like uh when you had gone to some people that it was this feeling that they wanted to fix you or they needed to um, get you to a place or you know, make you make you better than you were before, when from in your words, you needed someone to say, it's going to be okay, um, you're a good kid. Um, just as we get ready to close this out, as I mentioned to you, we have school counselors, psychologists, principals, and people. Who listen in to this um, broadcast? That I would love for you to just to tell me and them what advice do you have um, for either you know how you handle and of course every everyone is different, but that is more an unconventional approach because I, I think sometimes what happens is that people uh, have their go to. Uh, strategies, um, you know what would have worked for you, and it wasn't what was conventional. So what advice would you have given someone to, uh, in retrospect, to have tried to reach you? And I and I mean, if it's the same, it's like, it's going to be okay, you're a good kid. How do you know when that's the uh, answer or that's the solution for someone like you, Um, just so that they know it it is certainly something to put in their toolbox.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, there's two portions of it. First is listen. Okay, listen um, as much as you can. It's a truism that when we're talking to people, most of the time we're not actually listening, we're just preparing our next monologue, preparing Mm -hmm. our next time to talk and saying what we're going to talk about next. So actually, listen. Listen to the kid who's talking to you, because and, and validate that their emotions are, are are meaningful and that they deserve respect. And the 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 companion to that is stick with it. That when you are in that, when you're that person who's in that dark spot and you're depressed and you feel like the world is crushing you and that you're worthless your life is probably full of people who are trying to fix you somehow. And you have learned how to test them to figure out who's worth it and who's not. And so one thing that you, that as the person who's trying to help, one you will, you will encounter, absolutely you'll encounter is someone trying to push you away that they don't believe that you're there to help. They're going to push you away because you're probably full of crap like everybody else is. And You don't see the real them because if you saw the real them, then you'd see the monster. So what are you looking at if you're not seeing the monster? So they're going to push you away as much as possible. And so be that one that sticks with it. Mike was my friend and was able to save me because when I was in that tsunami of damage and I was going through that that massive waves of destruction, he was the one island of calm that never moved. (laughs) He never moved. No matter what happened, no matter how much my damage was happening, no matter how much my world was completely destructive around me, he never moved. And mm-hmm. he didn't let me break him down. He didn't let me push him away. Because the person, that they will test you. They will try to shove you away. Because mm-hmm. everybody else gets shoved away easy. And if you're shoved away, then you're just like everybody else. Sure. And so if you want to be that one person that breaks through and be and is that island of calm for that person in that ocean of destruction... Then you have to be able to withstand the blows and withstand the, the, the damage coming at you because you will be tested. You yeah. will 100% be tested, and you have to withstand that. Be mm-hmm. that person that that when the rest of their world is 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 crushed and everything is burning in flames, you're the one person that's still standing there saying, "Yeah, you're okay. You're going to be all right. Mm-hmm. You're still good. You're you're still going to be okay." Even when they push you down and shove you down, you're still going to say you're going to be okay. That mm. it's it's simple. It's, it sounds simple, but it's the one most it's the least least common, most rare, and most potentially life saving thing you can do mm. is just just stick with it through all the damage they throw at you. Wow!
0: Thank you so much, don't, Aaron.
1: Don't give up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm sure, as I said, when I opened up, that um, this, as well as the many times that you have shared your story and that valuable advice at the end that you just offered, um, incredibly powerful. And hopefully there are uh, people who are out there who are in this in these roles um, that are psychologists and so, social workers and uh, staff at schools that will pay attention to that. So, again, thank you for sticking with me uh, over our time, I promised, um, but it was well worth it. And, um, again, I think, um, you know, it is certainly something that um, a lot of people are going to talk about for quite a while. Um, wishing you the best i saw where you said um uh you are a father of four um and that being a yes dad sir, was a yes favorite sir. part of life um love it um and we are just wishing you and your family all the best and um if there's ever, ever anything that you're you're out on the east coast and you see us uh stop by columbia and um we'd love to get you some coffee and and chat again so um Until that time, go well, stay well, Aaron, take care.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: Bye-bye.